Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this specialist series, Explore How to Plan an Expedition, a series created for the Royal Geographical Society. I'm Matt Pycroft, an expedition specialist, filmmaker and photographer, and I've been going on expeditions under various banners for 15 years. I also sit on the Council of the Royal Geographical Society. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Eleanor Drinkwater, Ben Saunders, Shane Windsor and Tom Allen about the reality of funding and who's paying. We go deep into grant applications, how to write them, what to include and how to review them. We also cover crowdfunding, corporate commercial funding, and even self-funding. We discuss how competitive it all is, how to stand out, and what work remains when the trip is over. Money is one of the things people like talking about the least when it comes to expeditions and projects, but without it, your grand plan is often very little more than an idea. Finally, if you're looking for support with planning your own expedition or field research project, then head to rgs.org to begin the journey. Right, let's get started with episode three of Explore, How to Plan an Expedition. Okay, starting with Ben, please could you introduce yourself? My name's Ben Saunders, that's the easy bit. The hard bit is explain what I do. What I, what I used to do for 20 years, probably just over, um, was polar expeditions, which was challenging itself because then the world went, I mean, polar explorer sounds a bit grand. So I, ne- I never really knew what to call myself in that world, but uh, 12 big expeditions uh, between 2001 and sort of 2017, 18 was the last big one, although went back to Antarctica a few times since. So I was pretty busy in the polar world for 20 years. And uh, I'm, I am, I've made an unusual pivot, and we were joking just now, I'm not sure legally how much I can say about what I'm doing now. It's not, it's not nothing, um, sadly, I'm not a spy. Um, but uh, I am uh, hmm, early stage investing in climate technology. That's, uh, that's probably safe. <laughs> and now, Eleanor, please, could you introduce yourself? So I'm Dr. Eleanor Drinkwater, and I am an entomologist, which means I am a massive bug nerd. Anything to do with insects, anything to do with bugs, I do and I love. I've been lucky enough to to have been to many weird and wonderful places. If you want to go to fun places, study bugs. I mean, this is I mean, this is partly about funding, but it's also a massive sell to become an entomologist here. Um, so I got involved quite early on um, as an undergraduate when I I led my first expedition to the Amazon to look for butterflies, and then after that, I just kind of got the bug, as it were, no pun intended, um, and uh, really, you know, just taken every opportunity I've been able to have. Um, doing that and kind of building up my experience in serving different invertebrates and kind of looking for different species. Um, So uh, I've been doing this quite a while now. So starting with undergraduate expeditions, um, moving into getting a master's, eventually doing a PhD in Woodlouse personality. They have excellent personalities. Um, And now I'm working as a lecturer and still trying to get to the field as much as I can. And next on the list, Tom, please, can you introduce yourself? My name's Tom. I'm originally from the UK and for most of the last 16 years I've been living in the Caucasus, mainly Armenia, um, working on a ludicrously ambitious project called the Transcaucasian Trail, which when it's finished, which may or may not be in my lifetime, will be a 2,000 mile long hiking trail network across two mountain ranges, which currently have no trail network at all. And finally, Shane, please can you tell us who you are and what you do? I'm Shane Windsor and I'm the Expeditions Advisor here at the Royal Geographical Society. So where do you actually start with funding an expedition? How do you actually raise the money? How hard is it? And what are the different methods? Yeah, good question. And and looking back on my weird career, that was the hardest part. You know, I, I, I'm sure at some point as a teenager, I said, God, I, I never want to be a businessman, like boring. I want to be an adventurer. And l- looking back, it was all business. It was it was sales and HR to a degree, if, you, if you're recruiting team members or need people to, to help you and work with you. So it, it, it kind of turned into a business for me, which wasn't the, the expectation, wasn't really the plan if you're doing anything particularly ambitious in, in or you know, groundbreaking in some sense in a remote environment it's not going to be cheap now that there, there are of course degrees and levels to that and antarctica and the arctic ocean are about as expensive as you can get maybe under the sea is even more expensive but beyond leaving the atmosphere like this is this is big big money and i've i haven't kept tabs but but in 20 years 
I must have raised and spent several million pounds. Um, must be about five or six million at least. I work it out one day, but a lot of money. Um, I didn't keep enough of it looking back, but, <laughs> but, I, but I figured it out. And, um, and I found people, and this is partly why I'm, I'm really happy to pass all this on, because a lot of people were very generous to me with their advice and their wisdom and, and, and you know, giving me their, their old sponsorship proposals and showing me the documents they used and sort of talking me through the process. And, and I think like in no particular order, and, and I'm talking, my experience is purely corporate fundraising, you know, raising money from businesses. I, I, never, I never had a single grant because every grant I could find was a few thousand pounds. And I was trying to raise hundreds of thousands, if not more than that, seven figures. So I just, I, I didn't really have the time. And I think also I probably had this, you know, I'm not an academic. I don't even have a degree, age 45. I'm still in my gap year. So I wasn't, there were elements of research on some of these trips, but that wasn't the motivation. That wasn't the reason I was going there. So I, I, I've never had grant funding. It's always been commercial responsibility, like every penny. Um, and I'm trying to think of sort of important lessons. I mean, looking, looking professional is, is key. And that sounds weird because I wasn't doing this professionally early on, but if, if you're, if you're going to a business, um, with your project, your expedition, you're not asking for a donation. You're trying to sell them something. And one of the mistakes, one of the biggest mistakes, and I made this mistake early on, and I still see this now when people ask for advice and they're like, oh, here's my proposal, you know, document, PDF. I see the same thing over and over again, which is like, here's what we're doing. Uh, and there are three levels, three tiers, like gold, silver, bronze. And gold, gold is this much money and this is what you get and silver is blah and, and bronze. And it's a sort of one size fits all, which is the worst thing you can do because you have no idea what the company you're talking to might want to get out of this. So I, it's, for me, the process evolved over the years. There was a very short, very concise, ideally quite compelling and sexy sort of teaser document almost, like a couple of pages, short, well-made. And, and one of the nice things these days is uh, you can figure this stuff out yourself. Like there is software for free or for tiny amounts of money relatively um, that will enable you to make really good looking documents. You can make a website for almost nothing. You've got to have a short, compelling overview. Here's what I'm doing. But don't don't break it down into here are the benefits to you because you don't know the company yet. So you need a document that helps you get a foot in the door to have a conversation. And then your job is to understand like what you can offer this company. And hopefully you've done some research. You've had a look at the website. You've maybe had a look online. See if there are any interviews with any of their senior people online. What are they? What, what's a particular focus for them? Is, is it is it something to do with climate? Is it something to do with their how they work? Is it communication? Is it teamwork? Is it you know what are their what are their values? What's their mission statement? Is it about? And this is literally from a sponsor of mine back in the day. It was going the extra mile um, and the right attitude to risk. And I was like, well, great, I can talk about those things. I'm, I'm a, literally a walking, talking kind of mascot, like, here, here we go. Um, so do some research. Like, don't don't use this kind of one-size-fits-all proposal that goes to everyone. Just have a short overview that looks good because the decision makers, people that have money, don't have much time. So try and get a foot in the door, then have a conversation, figure out what you can offer them, and then sell it to them. Then send the proposal that is tailored to them. So that's like that's the, that was the biggest lesson for me. Um, it's just not sending the same document out the whole the whole time and expecting to land a you know, big check. I would say if we're thinking about a kind of funding an ex or you want to go on an expedition, that's the, the bottom line. You want to go on an expedition, see some awesome things. So I would say it kind of breaks down to three ways of doing it. This is in the context of research. So the first way is to lead your own expedition, get your own funding together, come up with a plan. Uh, the second way is to jump on somebody else's expedition. This can be harder to do and you need a little bit of experience behind you in order to make yourself somebody who people want to jump onto their expedition. Uh, and finally, uh, kind of later on in the career, it might be the case that this is incorporated into larger grants. I think that the hardest thing about planning an expedition is trying to sort out your key purpose, 
your overall aim, um, why you're doing it, and then funding will be part of that. So sorting out why you're, why you're doing it. Um, and there may be multiple reasons. You know, obviously, if it's a solo venture, you have to look into your heart and say, why am I doing this? Is this of interest to anyone else? Or should I just pay for it myself? If you're a group, then trying to manage the group, the needs of the group and their different aspirations and different motivations for being involved. And then if you want this to be a worthwhile venture with a legacy, how big or small that plan is, that project is going to be. And as we all know, actually it's a huge time commitment. And whether you're raising money for funding or you're raising money to organise the expedition, um, you have to be realistic about how much time you can put, put into that venture. Because if you have a project and an idea and a passion that is feasible, you can then look at what appropriate funding sources are. And often, and I think maybe with the cost of living crisis, I have increasingly said to people who want to do a venture, don't spend too much time fundraising from other people. You know, you can earn a good salary working behind a bar in hospitality. You can control the time and the hours that you work. So do that, um, perhaps in, in parallel with your studies or other employment streams, and then you have total control of how you spend money. As soon as you ask someone else for that money, especially if you go into the sponsorship realm, then you are making a commitment to sponsors that may actually shape your expedition or even control it. So if we talk about sponsorship for a little while, then sponsorship means, I promise, you know, I have promised to do something in exchange for the money you give me. And many expeditions overpromise and underdeliver. Um, that obviously muddies the water for future expeditions, but actually may have a very long tail. You know, you may be spending several months or even years after the expedition providing payback to a sponsor. Um, obviously, being a brand ambassador is something slightly different. If you're doing a, your first expedition um, and you're a group of university students, you'll probably want to go to grant organisations who want to invest in your skills training, people like the Royal Geographical Society, the Scientific Exploration Society and others, um, who understand that you're learning skills and hopefully will provide benefit but even then, the society is very clear that if they're going to fund student expeditions, they will give preference to collaboration with host country nationals and participants. And that is challenging because you're bringing in another group of stakeholders with their own aspirations. Um, yeah, my experience of trying to fund my projects has been extremely varied in success. I've tried pretty much every approach that, you know, you'll find in the expedition planning handbook <laughs> um, and that you'll find, you know, as general advice out there on, on the subject. Um, I'm just trying to think how to encapsulate it, really. Um I would say that I had relatively little luck with any kind of serious funding until there was a really compelling cause behind the expedition that I wanted to do. I just found that when I was doing these journeys basically for myself and then trying to make it sound like a good pitch to someone with money, it very rarely actually worked. And if it did, it was usually a lot of effort and time spent for very, very little uh, gain to the point where I may as well have got a job and earned some money and then just paid for my own expedition. Um, that, I would say, started to change when I built a, 
an audience that was interested in my work for its own sake. And that's the kind of thing that is much more possible now because of, you know, the rise of social media and the internet. You can very easily find like-minded people who are, you know, share your worldview and interested in what you're doing, regardless of actually what it is. It's more that you're the one that's doing it. And that opens up opportunities such as crowdfunding to raise money by what were previously non-traditional means for what you would probably call personal projects. Um, You know, so for my first book, for my first, well, not my first, for my first book and for my second film project with Leon, we used Kickstarter. Um, We, you know, were very transparent about what we needed the money for. It wasn't to pay ourselves. It was to cover the costs of producing the, the books and the films that we wanted to make. Um, and we, you know, we, we were talking, talking directly to our, to the people who supported us, uh, whether, you know, from a distance over the internet or, or in real life to raise that money. And that was very successful. Um, you know, we covered, we, we, we raised the amount of money we needed in both cases and we produced what we aimed to produce. Uh, and that was very successful in the, you know, on, on the scale that we were doing it at. Regarding more traditional sources of f- uh, funding for expeditions, I really didn't approach corporate sponsors or um, grants until the idea for the Transcaucasian Trail came along. And it was brought to my attention that components of that project would involve expedition-style travel and that there were funds available for it um, from the RGS and also from other you know, funding uh, bodies. So, yeah, I kind of jumped in at the deep end and applied for the Land Rover bursary from the RGS um, with the idea that it would help me to get this Transcaucasian Trail project off the ground. And to everyone's surprise, most of all mine, I, was, I, I actually got it. The international development world is, is, is full of big donor organizations looking for good projects to spend their money on. Um, it's very backwards in a way. Their budgets are allocated years in advance at the state level, and then these agencies have to spend the money or else they don't get it again. So in places like Armenia and the Caucasus, um, being the owner of a cool-sounding and like demonstrably beneficial project puts you in a very good position to tap into that, that world of funding. Um, and for the trail, we've found that we have to, again, tailor what we're applying for and tailor the proposals that we write, that we write to hit to totally different criteria, depending on who whose funds are available. So with the EU funding most recently, it's been very business development oriented. And what that means is we design projects which, you know, in, incorporate exploring and mapping trails but they also incorporate surveying rural areas and villages and engaging with those communities to see if we can help them develop their economies through trail traffic. So you're you're kind of trying to connect a lot of dots between something that sounds like it has nothing to do with expeditions whatsoever um, with actually getting money to go out and explore. Uh, and another example is conservation. We uh, have got quite a lot of funding from uh, donors who are focused on conservation efforts in the region. They fund protected areas, they fund ranger training programs, but when they are approached, it turns out they will also fund um, trail development projects uh, because they see that as a way to actually lessen the impact on nature by concentrating traffic in certain areas and along certain routes. So again, that's a way that we've funded a lot of surveying, mapping and exploration work by connecting that back to the idea of nature protection and conservation. And, you know, I could go on with more examples like this, but the point is that um, these are not even slightly traditional sources of funding for expeditions, yet we've somehow managed to direct that money into doing that kind of work anyway. And some of these things can be done for what's a relatively small amount of money. So I guess it can be very doable to self-fund. 
I think it's maybe not what people want to hear, but I do think it's an incredibly important point. I'd absolutely encourage people to pay for their first expedition if they can. And indeed, I'm not necessarily saying baby steps, but a big idea requires a big skill set, almost certainly. And so a progressive skill, um, and I think it was Joe Tasker who said, um, you know, it's really nice to get to the top on your first expedition. So choose a small objective that you can succeed on. You know, you can build a team, you can learn how to manage a budget, you can learn all those interpersonal skills that make projects successful, fascinating, exciting, positive experiences. Um, And with that, or even if they're not, you learn some lessons and then you plan something more ambitious, confident that you've got those skills to do that. And that can be science, it can be adventure, um, you know, it can be a whole range of, it can be a journalistic endeavour, it could be travel writing, it's a whole range of, of opportunities that are out there to do expeditions, but absolutely to pay for it. I think a lot of people think, well, I could never afford to do an expedition. But, you know, there was this old-fashioned concept of personal contributions, you know, to show commitment. Funders wanted to see that you'd put some of your own money in because, after all, it costs to live at home. You know, it costs to feed yourself. Um, Everyone should make a personal contribution. But, of course, if everyone commits to that and to a payment plan um, over a period of time, then you can build that up. I think the first question should be, why do I need someone else's money? I think when you're at the beginning of a journey like this, a metaphorical journey or a literal one, uh, yeah, the first question should be, why should anyone else pay for it? And if you can't think of a good answer, I usually go down the route of being very black and white and saying, save up and do it. Because, firstly, you probably can if you if you just work hard. Secondly, um, you will have no strings attached to your journey if you do it that way. And that gives you all the freedom you need to make all the mistakes you're going to make and fail to achieve all of the things that you think you're going to achieve and um, learn everything you're going to learn by doing something for the first time, which only happens once. So I think next we'll talk about grants, how to write them and how to get them, etc. And grants are something I have hardly any experience of. Are they just a white page with text on them? Or do they need to be like perfectly laid out pitch decks full of glossy images? So in terms of what it might look like on a, on a page, um, I would say no pictures to start with. Um, references, we love a reference. If you want to put references in, put references in, put them at the bottom, add Harvard referencing. Everyone loves a Harvard referencing system. I mean, you obviously don't have to, but it makes your work look like it's been well-researched. Um, and have nice papers in, in there as well. Make sure you get them from good, uh, reputable journals and stuff. So, so show, and that's just a way of showing that what you were talking about is... Um, valid and relevant. So I would start out with an introduction in which you set the scene. So imagine if this is your novel, this is your opening chapter, you're looking across the the the, the, the wilds of, of entomology and you're explaining. So I would say start start with the big picture. So you could say, so again, I, I do bugs. So I might start with talking about insect declines. Oh, this is a really big problem. And one of uh, the drivers could be climate change, for example. And then you kind of hone in and say, okay, and then this leads on to, you know, maybe your particular species. So say, you know, in one species in particular that's been heavily impacted is this species. And this is a really big problem because um, we therefore have this gap in our knowledge. So you want to get to your gap. So big picture, why is this a problem? Hone it in onto your species or your question. Highlight the knowledge gap. Where is the gap in our knowledge? What are we trying to work out? And then you could say, therefore, in this expedition or in this piece of field work, we're going to try and and fill this gap. So that's kind of what your introduction might be looking for and fill it with loads of beautiful references to lovely journals. So that's the kind of first bit. Your next bit, you might want to put your kind of aims and your objectives, maybe your hypotheses. So basically, we want to see what is your overall, why are you doing what you're doing? So this could 
be, you could put like one overarching aim and then several kind of sub aims as it were. And then you need to give your kind of materials and methods. This doesn't need to be very detailed, but you could say, you know, we're going to be doing um, this type of, of surveying. We're going to do this number of surveys. Um, the just This is why we could justify it. This is a good reason because. Um, and so that's kind of that part. And then you might have a section, for example, on impact um, and saying, oh, um, we believe this will be important because this is, this is going to fill this important gap and the information is going to be disseminated in these particular ways. So that's kind of overall in a nutshell what a academic proposal looks like. You're looking at the background, the gap in the knowledge, what you're going to do and why, um, and then what is the impact of this going to be. So that's kind of the key elements, um, but it varies a bit depending on the grant body that you're going for. So make sure you read really carefully um, what they're looking for. And something I do, and this is a bit of a tip here, um, if I'm looking at a grant, it'll say, uh, we are looking for um, projects which encompass this, 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 and this. You can take those things that they want and turn them into subheadings. And man, if you're on the other side and you're trying to tick off, has it included this, this, and this? If there's a subheading, it's so nice. It's so easy and you can just tick it through. So, so make sure that... Um, you go keep going back to the application form and make sure that you've ticked off all of those areas. And if there's a structure, you know, try and, and use that structure. So are you actually writing a unique proposal for each and every grant? Or is there an element of copy and paste with some changes to ensure that it's appropriate? So I would say my perspective of this have rapidly changed since I've started reviewing projects. In the past, I used to write the same proposal, just edit it a little bit and then send it to different things. And I know people would always tell you, they know when you do that. And I'd be like, no, I'm sneaky. They will not know. I can tell you they do know. It is immensely obvious the moment that you open a proposal if there's been a copy and paste job. Um, so things, it, it, they get quicker to write the more you write because you have um, the basis, you know what you're talking about. Things like the budget can be copied and pasted over, but particularly when you do the justification, write it fresh, please write it fresh, and I promise things will go better. So what makes a good grant application? So I think different funding bodies will be looking for different things. Um, so uh, the ones that I that I get tend to be quite early stage. So often you will have early stage, which look for the concept and the idea. And then later on, you will get the more developed ones. Um, so just in terms of the early stage ones, I would say that, that my kind of top tips would be firstly, you know, having this, this kind of colourful story to grip the imagination is really important. But also having good aims and objectives, you know, what is it exactly that you want to do? You know, biodiversity survey is something that's very broad. Um, a biodiversity survey to uh, assess the uh, populations of this particular species and compare them to a baseline that was taken 10 years ago, you know, much more kind of precise. So we need to know exactly what you want to do and how you plan to do it. Um, so that would be my second tip. The third one would be to think you don't need to solve the world's problems in one expedition. And I think this is something that, and I know I am very guilty of this in the past, you want to go to this part of the rainforest, survey every species on the face of the planet and, and change the world, and that is awesome. That might not be within the capacity of one expedition. So so don't be tempted to make it too big. A, a assessor will much prefer to see something that's very doable and can see you know, something that's small but well thought out within the scope of a small project it's fine. So don't feel like you need to kind of make it too big, make it manageable. And I think that's a really key thing as well, that you have your aims and objectives, you have your story, and it's manageable within the time frame allowed. So I think those are the kind of key things that we kind of, I would certainly look for in that side of things. So how important is understanding the potential impact of an expedition? So, so this is the really, really good question. So this is a really good question. And I think it depends slightly on the the type of expedition that you do, but also the funding body as well. Um, there are certain f funders who kind of perhaps look at, at this more in the kind of development of the scientists. So this is an opportunity for the de scientists to develop their skills. Um, so if you see somebody who you believe is, you know, a, a budding entomologist who needs a little bit of support to get that experience, who will then go on and change the world, I think that's a type of grant. And you will be able to see that in the language of the grants, talking about development of the scientist, um, you know, having a champion for change or something like that. And in that case, the expedition is about 
the aim. So it is about finding the science, but it's also about developing the person as well, that the team members, you know, you are going to go and change the world in the future. But right now, this is a kind of stepping stone. So so in, in my opinion, it, you know, again, it depends on the... Um, uh, you know, the grant, but I would say it's partly real world impact, but also partly, you know, development and making you into a brilliant scientist. But that's not to say, and this is something which I think is really, really valuable and important, particularly if you're doing overseas research, is to work out how you are going to work with the scientists in the country. We don't want to go out somewhere independently survey something and then go home, that's not a very good model for many ethical reasons. Um, so if you don't know anybody, I would recommend getting in touch with a um, um, research centre, for example, people working in a research centre and say, hey, what can I do to help? What is a survey that would be helpful for you? And then that's really good because you can build those connections, you can kind of learn from the scientists in the field, but also you know that what you're doing is not going to be left in a dusty drawer, it is actually going to be something that's kind of helpful. And how important is a rock-solid budget and a good financial understanding of what it is you're trying to do? I would say it's really important to budget and then budget with wiggle room. You know, when I can for expeditions in particular, I, I budget and do it precisely. Don't say, oh, it'll be about £800. Get your spreadsheet and say, you know, according to Fly B, on these particular dates, these flights will be £849.99. Work it out to the penny. And, if you know, funders love seeing that. They love to see that you've put that much detail in. Um, and... Think about all the small things as well. You're going to need plastic bags to collect your specimens. You're going to need a trowel to, to dig your latrine. Like, think about the small things that people always forget about because they really add up. If you forget about them and then you have to put them in later, it's a problem. And then also budget wiggle room. So if I am budgeting an expedition, I try to put an extra 20% on in terms of wiggle room so so and you could put that on your grant proposal you can say you know for unexpe um, unexpected expenses or things like that and often you know I've never ha I've put that on a lot of my grants I've never had a problem with that um so long as you justify it and you might have some questions and they might ask you to reduce that um but I would say go in with a higher figure because you know it happens, you know, you've got your brilliant plan and it's wonderful and then suddenly you're in the middle of nowhere and the boat that you're about to take hasn't turned up. You have to hire another boat and you have to then hire a car. You know, things happen and you will need a little bit of extra money. So make sure you budget a little bit extra. And again, it, it shows kind of prudence and it shows that you're aware of the challenges that you're going to face. So, so don't be afraid of kind of budgeting a bit extra. Do you think the world of scientific expeditions is well funded or is there this kind of huge gap and is it insanely competitive? I would say it's hard to get funding. It's always going to be hard to persuade people to give you the money. Um, but I would say that there is often a barrier that people don't apply because they think it's going to be too hard. Um, so there's a lot of there is a lot of grants out there, and um, you know, again on the on the on the grant side, you know, I've had grants and we've only had six applicants because it's a bit of an obscure grant. Not many people know about it, or not many people can think that they can kind of meet the criteria. Um, so I think, yes, there is there is gaps in funding. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of competition. Um, but at the same time, I, I think that it's important, particularly for undergraduates. I feel like people who are at that stage, they don't realise that there's that kind of funding available. So I would say, yes, it's competitive, but you should give it a shot. You know, if you don't give it a shot, you're never going to have the opportunity to do it. Um, and there is also support out there available to help you apply for these grants. And that is something that you should definitely take advantage of. Um, so for example, if you don't know how to write a grant, grants are terrifying, they still are. Um, and I've been doing this a while now. Um, but you for for society grants like the Royal Geographical Society, for the Scientific Exploration Society, for the other societies out there who support grants, often uh, people people who work there are lovely. Everybody who works here at the Royal Geographical Society is is lovely, and they want to help. If you email them and say, and I've certainly done this, and say, hey, I want to apply for this grant, would I be eligible? You know, tell me about this, or is this the type of thing that you want? In most cases, you get a lovely person on the other end of the email who will help guide you and support you through it. Um, and also, if you are, say, at an academic institute, or even if you're not at an academic institute, but you find an academic who you think might um, support you, send them an email. Uh, I, I speak as an academic, we're all massive nerds, and we love it when somebody who 
as an undergraduate gets in touch and says, hey, I really like bugs too. You know, let me, help me to, to do this thing. Um, you know, I love it when people get in touch like that. And so don't be afraid to ask for help and don't be afraid to apply for these grants because they are doable and they should be. Um, there are lots of grants specifically for undergraduates and kind of early stage uh, adventurers and researchers. And I realise the answer to this next question is as long as a piece of string, but what sort of pots of money are available? Are we talking, you know, two to ten grand or does it go all the way up to silly numbers? Uh, it does. It depends on what you're wanting to do. So, so first of all, I would say, like, um, it depends a lot on the biome that you're wanting to work in. So I love the tropics. I love the tropics because there are many beetles in it. Um, <laughs> this is a reoccurring theme in my life. But the nice thing about the tropics is you... The costs of a field trip there are relatively low compared to something like if you're going on expedition to Antarctica, for example, you will need a lot more very specialist kits. So I would have a think about um, what budget you will need will depend very heavily on what biome you need. I can go out on, on expedition to the Amazon with some really old clothes, old T-shirts. You know, you don't want expensive gear if they're just going to rot, which they will. So... Um, Think about the biome and think about how much you need for your kit. So start with that. Um, I would say that for an undergraduate expedition, or kind of, I keep saying undergraduate, but what I mean is like an early career expedition. Um, someone wanted to get into the field. Um, there are a lot of grants around about the kind of 1,000 to kind of 3,000, 5,000 range. Um and these, you know, so the Royal Geographical Society has them, a lot of other societies about that range. And I think this is a really good amount because that will give you what you need to kind of really support a short expedition. So maybe like a month, maybe six weeks in, in the tropics. Um, the costs, as I said, you know, gear, it depends what you, what you want to do. But I mean, most of my work involves a hand net and, and some um, Tupperware boxes, to be honest. So, um, so you can do those kinds of expeditions quite cheaply. So I think those are a good place to start. Um, there's a lot of smaller funding as well. So you get lots of funding for like £100 and £200 and things like that. Um, I'd say you need at least one bigger grant for the like in the £3,500 category. Um, but the, the very small grants can be quite good at increasing your legitimacy. If you can show that you've already got a small grant, it can help you get leverage for the bigger grants. So I would say... There's a lot out there which will give you up to £200. They can't be used in isolation, but they're good to leverage more funding. There's then a, a whole bracket in the kind of £3,000 to £500,000 range, which are really useful. After that, it gets a bit more tricky. Um, so there's a couple that I know of that go up to about £10,000, um, but you might be expected to bring certain skills to the table with those types of things. So um, the one that I'm thinking of, you have to be a filmmaker in order to do it. Um and then after that, you, you're getting into the territory of um, big grants that you might have to pursue a, um, you know, maybe like a BBISRC grant to look at a big body of work. So thinking about um, research that might be done as an academic and that kind of thing. So, so it's kind of different scales. So, um, yeah, you have your very small you have your £3,500, which is kind of early career or pilot studies as well. And then it kind of jumps up to big things. So that's kind of how I see it structured in, in my field anyway. And so how do you then go about reviewing what you've written? Is there an opportunity to get reviews or feedback on your grant applications? So I would say... It, I would say that if I was to be writing a grant, for example, um, the first thing I would do is to write it it'll be terrible. I would put it in a drawer and then I would bring it out a week later and feel sad and then rewrite it and do that at least kind of four or five times. Um, usually with expeditions, you're working in a team and that's really valuable, for, particularly at this this stage, um, then kind of swap it around, get everybody in the team to look at it, get their feedback. Um, if you don't have very much experience, and also if you do have experience actually, ideally it's good to find a senior colleague um so in my case um there's a there's a brilliant very senior academic in uh the department i work and he's lovely and i send it to him and then he um will give lots of constructive suggestions again i will feel sad but i will then work on it so it's an iterative process so so i would say you know don't be afraid about getting feedback from people you know get your mum to read it you know and that can be good because often 
if in your head you know what's going on, but on the page might, it might not be clear. So getting someone who doesn't know anything about the subject can be really good to get that clarity in what you're trying to say. So do bounce it around people. Um, most cases with grants, you don't necessarily have to submit the full thing first time off. There's usually different rounds. So with science ones, you will submit, um, you know, I don't know, maybe an A4 sheet, maybe less than that, maybe a few hundred words to give your your story, your kind of pitch, as it were. Um, and then you will be invited if they if you get through that stage to then um, submit something a bit longer. So but even with that little pitch, even if it's only 250 words, work that 250 words. Don't just write it and send it the night before. Make sure that you get other people to look at it. How much does grant writing offer you an opportunity to understand what it is you're trying to achieve? And can it be enjoyable if approached through the right lens? You know, this is really nerdy to admit. Um, We're among friends here. Um, (laughs) And you're listening to this podcast too, so I'm sure you're among these people. But I actually really enjoy grant writing. It's... I love the early stages of grant writing where you are coming up with a proposal to do something super fun. You've always wanted to go and study this weird bug and, and then suddenly you're coming together with a plan and, and you're, 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 you're pouring over maps on the desk. I love printing things out and you can and draw arrows where you're going to go and it all feels very exciting. And, you know, to me, that kind of planning process of it is a really important part of, of the project. And, you know, I would say that the planning process and then the going and doing are my two favorite bits. The looking for money in particular in the middle is a bit more tricky, but the, the planning and writing the proposal, super fun. Um, and, and there's ways to make it more fun as well. Um, so, you know, I would say focus on the aspects, you know, choose something that you're really passionate about. And so again, for me, it's Beatles. And then I have an opportunity to spend like two weeks reading papers about Beatles. It's heaven. Um, and um, <laughs> Beatles might not be your thing, but you know, whatever is your thing, you know, think of it as an opportunity. Give yourself the space and the time to kind of really just immerse yourself in the thing that you really love. And that's an amazing, you know, we're so busy all the time. So, so writing a grant can sometimes be a really nice way to take a step back and think about it. But also, people and as you know we chatted about before you know building these collaborations with people who are working in country that's something else that is really fun suddenly you have the opportunity and again Royal Geographic Society has been brilliant for this it gives you the opportunity to speak to really cool people who've done really cool things so the number of times like at RGS Explore which has been really important for me as, as an early person you can go up to some amazing explorer and be like hey I'm planning an expedition to X can you give me uh, tips about you know I don't know what water purifiers on mountains or, or, you know, whatever. It gives you an in to to kind of talk to these cool people and learn some really amazing things. Um, so, you know, whether it's in the, the Royal Geographical Society, and again, I would definitely recommend Explore to do this, um, or if it's, you know, building these collaborations with people in country is brilliant, but also building your 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 relationship with people in your team is really fun as well. You know, through the exchanging ideas, usually in the past, I've had the experience where, you know, I've come up with the initial idea, I assemble my my dream team of amazing people, and then the proposal grows and they're like, oh, but what about this? Or did you know that there's this cool species? Or should we bring drones in? Yes, we should bring drones in. And so seeing it develop and building those kind of relationships with people is really fun as well. So grant writing isn't scary. It's really fun. We've spoken a lot about grant applications. And now I think we'll move on to something at the complete other end of the spectrum, crowdfunding. Is crowdfunding a viable option? Um, I think with crowdfunding, it's. I think the. I think the one of the key things is that you shouldn't to make too much of how important your project is. And I know that sounds kind of counterintuitive, but I think successful crowdfunders are funded uh, in the expedition space, at least, because people are on board with the personal motives of the person who's going to do it and they want to see someone succeed and that's more important than the you know the outcome you know so am I allowed to totally contradict myself and say that because I also just said that it doesn't matter who you are anymore (laughs) what you want to do (laughs) Uh, I think it's okay to put um personal motives first in crowdfunding because that is ultimately the compelling story that people want to see come to its natural conclusion and that is why people will chip in with this small amount of money which for them is a very small financial risk Um, which is totally the opposite to when you're asking one person or organization for a huge amount of money 
when who you are and your reasons for doing it are probably bottom of the uh, list in terms of importance. I think uh, the depth of engagement you have with individual people is by far the most valuable thing um, that you can have when you're trying to crowdfund the projects because, as you say, that's someone who really cares about your success is the person who's going to um, is going to fund you. You know, whether it's ten pounds or a hundred pounds, but you know, contribute in a small way to your big project. Um, the number of people you've got who once clicked on a like or follow button because you asked them to several years ago um, is going to have no bearing on your success at all. You could buy half a million followers, and none of them would give you any money when you asked for it. You know, so um, and I think it's, it's interesting to see how many people are nowadays privately sharing their um, their work and their projects. They some people have just abandoned the public platform that social media provides altogether and gone for closed groups and you know a much more private way of sharing things with a smaller group of much more engaged people. Um, and I'm wondering how much value that might have in the crowdfunding scenario as well. Let's say you have 100 people who you're sending emails to or like a Telegram channel or something like that that is definitely not about follower numbers on Instagram or what have you. Um, how successful those people would be uh, when, they, when it came to asking for contributions to a crowdfunder. It makes me immediately think of these subscription-based um, crowdfunding platforms that I've started using in a very small way, and I've also engaged with other people um, on in a, in, a, in a in a small way as well. These are things like Patreon and Substack, where um, instead of just giving somebody a one-off donation for a single kind of result, people are continuously funding on an ongoing basis the work of a creator and a create creator is a very you know vague word but it could easily be interpreted to mean someone who is communicating an expedition um <clears throat> so yeah i mean I've, I've started subscribing to various people who i would call expeditioners or travel you know journalists you know people who occupy that space and I give them whatever it is, five or ten pounds a month, because I want to read what they're what they're creating or, or support them in doing in creating it. Um, yeah, this is a this is a relatively new, but I think growing part of the crowdfunding picture, which might be more appropriate depending on, I guess, the duration of a project or the you know the long term uh, outlook of the work that's going to come out of it. Okay, and now onto corporate or commercial or branded funding. How do you go about finding those companies? Well, I aim at a lot. <laughs> uh, how do I find them? I was pretty naive to start with. And, and there's a sort of irony to this because I ended up, you know, the biggest deals I had were with huge global brands, Land Rover, Intel, Canada Goose the three biggest deals I've had. And the irony is that I, I always caution people from approaching massive global brands because I've, I've seen, you know, from the inside, they get pitched the whole time. I mean, like dozens of proposals a week. And I dread to think, did I ever pitch Red Bull? But something like a Red Bull or a North Face, it must be inundated with, with pitches for adventurous stuff. So my advice and this is sort of paradoxical advice because it's not how things pan out for me. My advice is to, to um, A, to look for what I call challenger brands. So who's, don't go for North Face, go for who's a company trying to get into that space? Who's a relatively new business that seems to have a slick website and some budget for, again, marketing, ironically. But, you know, go for the, go for the brands who are sort of up and coming um, and where there's, a, there's an angle. You can say, look, I've seen you're doing this and I, I believe I can do this for you. Um, so it's kind of sales in a way, which is weird looking back. Like that was the hardest part. 20 years was selling selling me and my daft ideas that were often pretty high risk with no, no guarantee of success. 
And do you think things have changed since you were doing it? Yeah, oh, for sure. You know, things, things changed dramatically. And, and I think the one thing that did change during that 20 years was social media appeared uh, like out of nowhere. And, and I'm, it's funny, I, I feel conflicted about this because I'm a huge geek. Like part of, part of how I got where I did, part of how I raised the money that I did over, over 20 years was the fact that I figured out quite early on how to update a website. You know, from my tent on the Arctic Ocean or in Greenland or in Antarctica and, and sort of to tell the story of what I was doing, like effectively in real time as it's happening. And there's real value to that. There's value to it. And I, I hate to reduce it to, to, to the idea of content, but that has a value. Well, stories, stories are the bit, not just content, because um, I'm, I'm emphatically not an influencer, nor have I been, nor, nor ever will I be. So... Um, so for me, I always sought, you know, long-term relationships. They, they were all, these were all sort of multi-year partnerships, so it's easier than ever. Like I was saying, you can create a website, you can start an Instagram account, like like it instantly. If you have a laptop or a phone, like you can you can start um, in a day. You can have a website. You can buy a domain name for a few quid for your expedition or project or whatever it is. So in some ways, easier than ever. Um, easier than ever to reach almost anyone um, these days. I mean, the, the internet. I, I I wouldn't have been able to do those 12 big expeditions without the internet. Like it was just absolute godsend. But the the downside of that is there's there's more noise these days. There's more competition effectively. Um, more people who've realized they can start a website and just come here and, and say they're doing an expedition or whatever. Um, so it's, and of course, like right now, people will tell you it's a hard time to raise money. But I've never known an easy time to raise money. You know? And I raised money through 2008, like massive financial crisis. I was, I was raising money. Um, so, yeah, I, I, like I said, there is never an easy time to raise money. And I, in my experience, there's never, you know, it, this entails work um, and, and focus and preparation and diligence and all, all of that stuff. And, and yes, I've had to be thick-skinned. Like I, I, for who knows, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, 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 of no's or of silence, of nothing even being returned, calls being unanswered, emails, nothing, yeah. Um, so you've got to be able to deal with that. And I've, I think over the years I had this b- built on my experience, I started to have this, this sort of belief that that I'd, I'd, I'd always hit the target, I'd always raise the money. I wasn't sure, sure where it was going to come from. And it often came from the least expected place at close to the last minute. So that was a sort of recurring theme. Like not, not so good for stress levels over the years, but, um, but I never, I mean, some expeditions were postponed because I wasn't fully funded, but I never didn't do an expedition because I couldn't raise the money. It never happened. So it feels to me like funding is essentially a sales pitch in a sense. You're competing for grants, institutions, brands, etc. Essentially, you're competing for a seat at the table against others. And I think often people struggle to stand out. I think sales is one of the things that, anecdotally, people struggle with the most. Is there an element of storytelling to fundraising? Is that the way to stand out? I would say absolutely. And I would say that the kind of really, so, so it's been very interesting for me. So, so now I'm sometimes on the other end. I, I am on a panel for grants. Um, and so I am very lucky to be on the end where I read people's application and suddenly it's really interesting for me. I love it because you see so many exciting things come through, but also I see stuff that I used to do and then I'm like, oh, okay. I, you, it makes you think about it differently. So, um, so the kind of, top things I would say that I've got from my experience both writing grants but also perhaps more importantly reading the grants is to find a story so yeah I'm getting a nod here yeah yeah it's all about the storytelling because we will get a whole bunch of 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 um uh plans proposals to go and do a biodiversity survey of a unsurveyed section of rainforest and that is the plan and I mean, really important, really exciting. I would love to come. Please let me come on this cool expedition. However, it doesn't have the story. There's nothing to set it apart from the other 50 applications who want to do the same, but in slightly different places. What really pops out is suddenly somebody says, you know, I 
really, really want to go on this expedition to this particular place because there is this amazing species um, that has only been sighted four times. Um, and so therefore, we're going to do biodiversity service. However, our focus is on this, this really cool species and kind of, you know, tell the story. Why should we care? Draw people in. Imagine that you are a um, literature writer who is writing the hook to their best-selling novel. Why do you want people to care? So, so yes, I would agree totally. It's about building a story and making somebody who's just read 50 million applications about a survey know why your survey is the most important absolutely yeah yeah so you're you're i would hope listening to this if you're, if you're trying to raise money for a project like you're a storyteller and if you don't see yourself as a storyteller yet i hope that that will that will change um because that not only is that vital in in the sort of base commerce sense of persuading a company to give you some money but it's also looking back it's been the most rewarding part of that whole journey for me was the ability to come back with experience of something knowledge of something that almost no one else has done or appreciates and then being able to share that like that that's the that's the joy and i think money is one of the things that people like talking about least but it's something that we absolutely should talk about and have to talk about and it can be the source of a lot of problems and falling out you know what happens if we make money what happens if we lose money um, who's responsible, who's accountable. I totally agree with you that having these what-if conversations um, openly and frankly and then not, not just having the conversations but then actioning those conversations and we all know that, you know, it's great, everyone can have good ideas and good plans and sometimes there just isn't enough time, you have to let things go, you can't do everything all the time. But if you've, um, you can't nail everything down, but by having the what-if conversations, you can um, start to look at how you can avoid those conflicts or how, prepare people. And, you know, it don't, it's not unusual to have those difficult conversations and someone to say, well, I thought I was coming on this project in order to build, you know, I'm paying all this money to go on an expedition to get, to build my portfolio of photographs so that I can establish my career as a photographer. And the team says, no, this is not what this is about. This is about us having a, a set of images that represent the expedition for ourselves, for our supporters, for our sponsors, for our friends, family, and ourselves. This isn't about making money from the imagery. Now, that may come to an impasse. Usually, you can come to some sort of genuine agreement by saying, well, the expedition has first pick of the first images, those are in a, a group, and then um, you're free to use the rest to try and make money, but you know, 20% of your sales should go back into the expedition budget. Um, and that's where then actually have some formal exchange of letters. You know, you could spend a lot of money with lawyers, um, but actually just what you want is a, a written agreement for the people who are joining the expedition to clarify some of those points. Um, and some sort of clause that then says, um, should this situation arise... Um, or should a situation arise outside, you know, the general terms of this, um, we will discuss it and try and come to some sort of fair sort of arrangement. Um, so I think that that can be relevant to all, to many aspects of the financial element. And it's, again, it's the same of, you know, if you can't, you know, we'll make every effort to, help support someone who isn't such a good fundraiser that, but who are bringing those sorts of skills. The hard one is when when someone just doesn't pull their weight in any shape or form um, and just wants to turn up on the day um, and trying to manage that resentment. And it may be for a perfectly understandable reason, but if that resentment builds up, then perhaps there needs to be a way of backloading that. That individual takes more responsibility. But if that trust 
has been broken, then maybe you need to know that before um, you're going to the field together because it's likely to flare up yeah. once you're in the field. And Shane, I know this is something you and I have discussed a lot and we're both very passionate about. You know, often we talk about coming home from the perspective of the individual, mental health, sanity, etc. But actually when it comes to funding, what about coming home? You know, the job is not done. The expedition's complete, but there's still a lot of work to do. Whether it's websites, social media, crowdfunding pages, the one thing that most expeditions don't do is manage to keep them up to date. And when they come home actually post what has been achieved. And if it's all gone wrong, as it sometimes does, be honest about why it went wrong. Um, Talk about why it went wrong so that other people can learn from that, Um, but also thank the people who have helped you. Um, But I think if you're planning an expedition, everyone you meet is a potential supporter Um, either because they might open doors for you or that they might um, be able to say a kind word to someone about the project that builds your reputation as you're planning um, or might actually be able to donate to your project um, in some form or another. I was amazed anyone was interested, I think, to start with. I was I was certainly astonished to find that I could get paid to, to stand up and tell a story. And and I, and I wasn't a natural storyteller. You know, I, I was pretty shy starting out, pretty reserved. I'm, I'm an introvert deep down. So, so it wasn't like I sort of naturally, you know, gravitated towards standing on stage and talking for an hour and showing some slides and photos. And that was... Again, that was hard work, and it was sort of putting the reps in, like doing it again and again and again, and talking to schools. Like that's the best way to learn how to tell a story to an audience. Like volunteer for free, local school, going give a talk. Like you will learn everything you need to know about holding a holding an audience. So that's where I sort of cut my teeth. Um, but I'm trying to go any other sort of top top tips that I can pass on. Um, I mean. Back to back to Rand Finder's letter to me, like it is, it, it's just hard work. Um, and I look back now with, with a sort of strange sense of, I don't know, quite pride, but certainly contentment that I that I saw it through. And I, I think it's a sort of, it's a useful filter because the people that you meet in Antarctica or on, in, on the mountain or in the desert or wherever it is that you do your thing. Um, they're all going to have a story. They've, they've, they've all worked hard to get there. Like, they haven't just, you know, ended up there by chance. <laughs> it's certainly my experience. So it's, it's, it's the hardest part of the process, but it's in a peculiar way, maybe mostly in hindsight, it's also incredibly rewarding because it's a challenge. It's an adventure in, in itself, in its own right. So as we begin to draw this to a close, what are your kind of final bits of advice or where to start? Start by honing down your project idea. If you're passionate about what you want to achieve and the contribution it's going to make, either to you as an individual or to um, for wider good, then, and can articulate that, you, your elevator pitch of 30 seconds then you're at a very good starting point to starting other people to buy into what you're trying to achieve and asking them to support you in either cash or kind. So first of all, I would say, you know, there's different ways. If you want to to lead your own expedition and you want to do research and you haven't had experience in this area, um, I would say, first of all, I'd say this is a plug for Explore. I love Explore. I just Explore. Get there. It's brilliant. Um, for me, I did that early career and that's really helped me set me on the right traps. Um, so RGS, look for their small grants. SES, look at their small grants. Um, there's a really good website, um, jamesborrell.com, and he has the best website I've ever come across in terms of just listing all of the grants. So that's a really good resource too that I go to and it's brilliant. If you're listening, James, it's great. Thank you. Um, 
so that's a really good source. Um, but also don't be afraid to reach out to people who've done it before and academics. Um, for me, my first foray into this is I saw a grant that I wanted to apply to, the Davis Expedition Fund that we chatted about. And I found a professor who studied butterflies and I just emailed him and said, dear professor, can I come and chat to you about butterflies? Thanks, Eleanor. That, that's the email that I sent. And obviously he was very keen to support me because he was great. Um, so find the grants and then if you're still unsure, find somebody who's done it before and say, hey, I'm thinking about applying for this grant. What advice would you give? And that's a really good way to do it. And particularly for things like the RGS grants or other grants, you can often see who the past winners were. And all of them are lovely people. I promise you that. Um, and if you find them on Instagram, find them on Twitter and be just like, hey, I saw you got this grant. I'm applying for it. What kind of advice would you get? And that's nice also to build those connections. And then you might see them at a, at a conference and you have something to talk about. So, so reach out to people. That would be the t top tip. Oh, fundamental top tips for successful funding. Okay, so so one is something that I'm going to regurgitate from someone else's RGS lecture, and that is um, make sure you're clear about whether your expedition is a, basically a a charity project or has something more valuable attached to it. And another way of saying that is, are you asking for a donation or an investment? Do you have something to give back to the person who's funding you? Or are you essentially, you know, holding your cap out for support? And I, I think most expeditions and projects could be put in one of those two, two categories. And which of those you're in will affect everything you do when it comes to raising funds it will affect how you communicate your project it'll affect um who you ask for funding it'll affect what platforms or what methods or strategies you use as well so i think it's important to be really clear about that from the from, from the word go um <clears throat> yeah and i think related to that if it is something that is a if it's for a cause if it's a, if it's essentially a charity project and you're asking for donations, then you have to be really clear about why people should care about it, why anyone should care about it other than you. And I don't mean making something up after the fact. I mean putting that cause front and center, and if necessary, actually changing your plans to make sure that that's the case, because that will increase your chances of success. People are very good at sniffing out when something's been slapped on at the last minute to make it sound worthwhile I think and um, you know by the by the, the other side of that coin is that when something is genuinely uh, done for reasons that are not personal or at least not egotistic then people can understand that as well very quickly I don't know. I, one more key thing. I, I think it's important to protect your fundamental ability to do what it is you're going to do, and not have it entirely reliant on someone else's, someone else, you know, giving you a handout. If you can have some kind of core funding, which is, you know, totally safeguarded and will allow you to do the basic version of your project, um, then I think that gives you a lot of confidence um, when it actually comes to raising more money because you, you're essentially scaling something up to meet the funding that is available. And if it's not available and you've tried everything, but you still need to do this thing, then at least you still can with these basic, you know, bare minimum resources. Thanks for listening. For more information on how to get started with planning your own expedition or field research project, head to rgs.org. This podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft, produced and edited by Laura Jacob for Terra Incognita Publishing, and Shane Windsor and Laura Melville for the Royal Geographical Society.